Welcome to the ABM Conversations Podcast. The number one podcast for B2B marketers wanting to explore timeless account-based marketing strategies to drive revenue, customer engagement, retention, and everything that makes sense to both marketers and sales folks. No more fluff. No more vanity metrics. Live from India. Made for the world. Hello and welcome to yet another brand new episode of the ABM Conversations podcast. And this is me, your host, Yag. In today's episode, we are going to discuss how to be sensible in the modern marketing world. And to discuss that, we have with us someone who doesn't need any introduction. He's synonymous with marketing, has written about 20 amazing books, which I would call as timeless. And if I have taken up marketing as my profession and enjoy it rather than just looking at it as work, I owe it to this gentleman. The person behind the Purple Cow, Lynchpin, This Is Marketing, The Practice, Alt MBA, and the Akimbo Podcast, and a lot more, the one and only Seth Gordon. Seth, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Well, it's a pleasure, and thanks for the work you're doing, showing up every day, helping people go forward. It, it matters a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much, Seth. So let's get started. You know, Seth, uh, the worldview of marketing in the current times is very strange. It swings between the worldview of a customer and the propaganda of a MarTech vendor. In fact, at least in the B2B marketing conversations that I've been a part of, the discussion is always around MarTech stacks or looking at teams like a production shop of content and programs that need to hit certain metrics. But the brands that really make an impact are the ones that do things very differently. For example, the other day I was talking to Tim Solo, the CM of Hrefs, and they don't even have a Google Analytics on their website. They charge $7 for a seven-day trial on their platform, and yet they are growing at 50% year-on-year. So tell us a little bit about what separates a great brand from the MeToo's. And I'm going with the assumption here that, say, if everybody cannot innovate, what can B2B marketers do to become more relevant and meaningful to their customers and prospects? Well, everyone hates marketing except for the marketing that works on them. And that's the stuff that we don't call marketing. That's the stuff right. that we call things that matter to us or stories that resonate or things that are worth talking about. And part of the problem we've got in our culture is that there's an enormous number of short-term, narcissistic, selfish, profit-maximizing people who are calling themselves marketers who aren't marketers at all. They're just hustlers. <laughs> that right. They call themselves growth hackers as if that's something fancy when really what they're doing is pushing something forward against the wishes of the people that they are marketing to. And that's an uphill battle that we don't have to have. That what we can choose to do is work that matters for people who care. What we can choose to do is show up with stuff that people would miss if we were gone to deliver anticipated personal and relevant messages to people who want to get them. But that takes patience and insight and empathy and unfortunately, those three things seem to be in short supply. <laughs> I, I cannot agree more with that. In fact, um, you know, when we are on the topic of uh, brands or people who do this, there is also a lot of talk around this idea of category creation and category design. And one school of thought is that you can't win if you aren't creating a category. While on the other side, people also say that you can always create a subcategory with your storytelling without having to burn your boatloads of VC money. So tell us a little bit about what are your views on category building? Well, I mean, we can talk semantics all day long. I love to talk semantics. What is a category? 
I mean, did Airbnb invent a category? I don't think so. Right. Did Facebook invent a category? Definitely not. So, you know, after the fact, it's fun to say, oh, those people succeeded because they invented a category. But I think it's pretty clear that there's only two categories, wants and needs. And within every one, within either wants or needs, everything can be divided into small and smaller slices. The people who are talking about inventing a category, I think what they mean to say is, you're not a commodity unless you act like one. And if you act like a commodity, then you're doomed. Right. So would you say that people are getting confused between uh, you know, having the ability to differentiate and are they calling that to be a category? Well, differentiation is selfish because differentiation says, I need to stand out, so I will invent artificial distinctions. That's the opposite of positioning, which is a service. The service is you don't have a lot of time. You have certain things you want. I will go to one of the edges of what is on offer so that when you decide you want something like this, I will be the obvious choice. So I like to talk about chocolate for this. Hershey's doesn't compete with the $20 bean-to-bar Askinosi dark chocolate bar sourced from the Philippines. They don't compete. They both make chocolate. But Sean Askinosi and his daughter Lauren didn't differentiate Askinosi. What they said is for adults who want to spend a lot of money but get more than they pay for, who want a remarkable ethical thing, that's what we make. If you want a Hershey bar, we are eager to have you buy a Hershey bar. We're not going to try to persuade you to not buy a $2 chocolate bar. We're here for the other people. Right, right. So in this scheme of things, then where does uh, niching down uh, fall into play? Because these are all like pretty adjacent terms and also sound a bit confusing when you look at it. So where does niching come into play? So we got brainwashed into trying to serve the biggest possible audience. And particularly if you're playing with the VC world, which is filled with a lot of people who don't really understand what's going on, but they've been lucky with the thesis. The VCs say you need to cross the chasm and sell to everyone. But in fact, everyone doesn't buy anything. That even you know the best-selling authors in America only reach 2% of the audience. The biggest cable networks, the ones you would be happy to own, reach 2% of the audience, 3% of the audience. The goal is not to niche down. The goal is to be specific about who it's for, the smallest viable audience. Can you be specific about what the person who buys from you dreams of, needs, wants? What story will they tell the others? If you can be specific about that, then the products you make will take care of themselves. Right, right. In fact, when we started this podcast, you know, we, we started talking only around the ABM topics and we started expanding. And one of the ways we thought was, uh, you know, maybe when we say niche down, it need not be that way for a long time. Maybe, you know, it's niching down for a particular period and then you expand. So have you come across any specific misunderstandings that people tend to commonly have about what niching means? Well, the people who avoid it, avoid it because they think their idea is so good that everyone needs to buy it. When in fact, the truth is that uh, everyone doesn't need to buy it and they're fooling themselves. And the people who embrace it sometimes get caught up by being in a niche based on features, not based on the dreams and desires of their customers, because that's what people are buying, particularly in the B2B space. So let's be really clear about B2B. The first thing is, if someone's buying B2B, they're not spending their own money. That's a huge distinction. 
Yes. Because everyone carries a story around money, but their story is sort of irrelevant. The second thing is if the company is issuing an RFP, if the company is saying it needs to meet this spec, they have just announced it's a commodity. And you answer RFPs at your own risk, that the opportunity you have is to get them to write an RFP for which you are the only answer, to be the specific, not the general. And the third thing, which is the biggest thing, when someone buys from you B2B, they are only asking one question. And that question is, what will I tell my boss? (laughs) Because if you don't give them a really good answer to that question, then the thing they're going to tell their boss is, I got it a little cheaper. You have to give them something better than that to say to their boss. And they are probably going to buy the commodity because they are afraid to say something bigger than that to their boss. Right, right. So if you can vouch for it, I, I, I love that. So, Sid, uh, you know, on that note, I also have a confession to make to you. I've been reading your books since 2008. And it's funny that I have swung like a pendulum when it comes to liking some of your books. For example, when I first read Lynchpin, I vehemently disagreed uh, with pretty much the idea of the entire book. I was thinking like, how can uh, any product or anyone become indispensable? How can Seth of all people in the world can even propagate this idea? And then a few years later, uh, you know, when, when I got a little more mature or rather became a little more open, I realized, yes, maybe, you know, Seth was right. Every industry does have only one hegemon and probably a thousand other atomized companies that come in and go out in the long tail. So that goes with people as well. So given that there are people like me who take time to get a better grasp of things and appreciate the depth of your work, who are your early adopters that spread your idea? In that essence, if you can extrapolate a little on how does one even identify that, hey, this is my niche or this is the market that I, I will market to? Um, well, first, thanks for the kind words. The um, Let me give you a specific example with my book, Purple Cow. When I came out with the book, Purple Cow, I was uh, not welcome in the book publishing industry. No one wanted to publish my work because my previous book had gotten a big advance and hadn't sold very well because it came out around 9-11. And... Um, So I had to publish it myself. And the way I published it was by printing 5,000 copies, just 5,000, and putting them in a milk carton. That's a long story. And then I wrote about the book in my column in Fast Company. Now, my column in Fast Company was read every month by, let's say, 90,000 people. Right. And I said to these 90,000 people with permission, here's an excerpt from my book. If you want a free copy, send me $5 for postage and handling. I only have 5,000. Now, $5 covered my postage and my printing. So I was going to break even. When I mailed this book to those 5,000 people, they had already demonstrated that they were early adopters. Because of the 300 million people in the United States, only 90,000 had subscribed to Fast Company and read my column. And of that, only 5,000 had gone to the trouble of mailing me $5 for a free book. So when I shipped the book in a milk carton, I was doing something intentional which is the people who got the book put it on their desk. Why? Because they wanted their coworkers to see the milk carton. Because they wanted their coworkers to say, what's a purple cow? (laughs) That feeling is why they wanted the book. Because they liked going first. They liked being seen by their coworkers as early adopters, as people who lean into new ideas. And by giving them a phrase 
that made them the smartest people in the room. By giving them the ammunition they needed to help their company make better work, I was solving their problem. They weren't solving my problem. And that's the key to all of this. When you show up with a piece of software, with a website, with a widget that solves a customer's emotional problem, not their commodity problem, but their emotional problem, they say, thank you. You don't have to hustle them. Right, right. But how easy or difficult is it to find these people? Because, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you're, you're uh, reaching out to a set of people. It's an experiment. Uh, then certain people are going to react, certain people are not going to. And then certain people are going to be legards who will recognize this at a later period of time. So how do you even choose whom to bet on? Well, you're not looking for them. They're looking for you. Right. And the reason they're looking for you is they have a problem. And so you want to figure out where do people with this problem go? and go there. And that is fundamentally different from the selfish mindset that most marketers use. Right, right. And I, I think that uh, modern marketing also tends to complicate things way too much. In the world of MarTech, at least, you know, where I am, we are very notorious for that. So moving on, like all these years, I realized that I, I work better when I carry this mindset of, uh, you know, being an amateur, because I, I, enjoy doing things for the fun of it. And I do it because I truly believe in those sets of things. Let's say this podcast, for example, the only purpose yep. of this podcast is to create the best repository of quality B2B marketing content over the next few years. But on the other hand, there are also people who are looking for hacks in pretty much everything that they do. I'm not judging them, but call me old fashioned. You know, I feel that hacks often tend to lack the soul that any creation needs. So you've been a teacher. So you inspire a lot of people. So tell us a little bit about what is the mindset that you advise young marketing professionals to develop? Well, you're a good man because I am judging those people who are looking <laughs> for hacks. You know, when I get a call from a telemarketer who pretends that they know who I am, who is reading a script where the script is designed to take advantage of people, to trick people. This is your last notice about your warranty expiring on your car. They're lying to me. Right. And they go to work every day claiming they're just doing their job, but they don't have to work there. They've got enough talent to work somewhere else. I'm judging them. And I think the rest of the world is judging you as well. And, you know, culture does not exist to make capitalism work. Capitalism exists to make culture work. And we have to own our work because if we don't, who will? So with that said, you know, I... My mindset has been, I'm a teacher, but I'm also a game designer. I started designing games in 1976 on the internet and uh, built the first, uh, not the first, but one of the most popular online games of the Prodigy slash AOL era. So I think about the world in terms of games. And games do not force people to play. They seek enrollment. And so you start by saying, who is enrolled in this journey? Who wants to go somewhere else? Who's willing to play this game with me? What rules are permissible in this game? How can I be a game master that people will be glad there is somebody organizing the game? So to pick an example that people are familiar with, TED is a game. It's a game because only 3,000 people get into the final round in Vancouver. Right. It is a game because only 100 get to get on stage and give a speech. It's a game. You can go down the list of all the interactions that are wired into TED around status and affiliation, all the way to a TED talk that reaches 50 million people. 
We're all playing that game. It's not putting food on our table. It's simply fun. It's engaging. It makes us feel like we're glad we did it. And most of what most of us make and sell at some level is a game. Right. So would you say that the ones who are looking for hacks are the ones who are not uh, interested in playing the long-term game or, you know, looking for a quick fix or a quick buck and they don't, they're not ready to play long-term games with long-term people? That's exactly correct. And they tell themselves they are, but they're keeping track of their exits. They're keeping track of their revenue. They're not keeping track of return customers. They're not keeping track of opportunities created. And they tend to work in the shadows. And they're afraid that if they published all of their insights, people would either steal them or shun them. And the people who are in it for the long haul give away everything they know because the infinite game gets better when other people know the rules. Absolutely. I'm I'm totally with you on that. And Seth, when I look at your career, you know, it, it's it's rich with a variety of experiences and experiments. And you're possibly the best person to answer what I'm going to ask you now. Like we often hear people talking about failing fast. And I think this is something that's vastly misunderstood. While the idea is to say that ship it and see how people respond, I've seen people taking it entirely to the other spectrum where they don't give enough time for any project to blossom. In fact, the last time around when we had Guy Kawasaki on the show, he he spoke about planting a thousand seeds and observing which one blossoms. So what, according to you, is the threshold of failing fast? Well, there are a couple of pieces to it. Uh, the first piece is that um, if you take a bunch of uh, raw dough and put some cheese on it, you don't want to test whether people like it or not because it's not a pizza. You have to bake it before you can test whether people think it's a pizza. So right. the minimum viable product has to have a minimum threshold. It has to be something that you could imagine someone could use and like. That doesn't mean you have to push it to be perfect. That would be the mistake. But it also means you don't ship junk. So that's part one. And then part two is there's a difference between strategy and tactics. Tactics you keep secret. Tactics you change all the time. Tactics are based on what your competition is doing. Strategy you can publish in public. Strategy you stick with for a long time. And I actually met Guy and worked briefly with him in 1983. And the thought that 38 years later, he and I are both in the same sentence is miraculous <laughs> to me. Right. Um, Guy showed up just before the Mac came out to deliver to me one of the first Macs as a beta tester. And um, how many years later does Apple still have the same strategy? 37 years. Strategies don't change. You stick with them. You shift the tactics all the time because they have to change. But once you commit to who you are seeking to serve, your minimum viable audience, and you get to learn what they need, what they want, what they dream of, what they talk about. Don't change that. Don't change that for a long time. Right, right. I, I absolutely love this. And at, at what point does any of these experiments become a mistake? And at what point a mistake becomes a blunder? You know, it's funny because uh, when I play chess against my phone, sometimes it says I made a blunder. And I had to look up the difference between a mistake and a blunder. Um, <laughs> I like making mistakes. I don't like making blunders. Uh, mistakes are tactics that didn't work, but that taught you something. Blunders are 
moral failings or sloppiness that gets you kicked out of the game. <laughs> right. And there's a fine line between the two, but knowing that there's a difference, I think is helpful. Now, I wrote a book called The Dip that's all about quitting. I used to be a book packager. I don't do that anymore. I used to be one of the most important DVD producers in the country. I'm glad I don't do that anymore because no one buys them. I used to make online internet email games. I don't do that anymore either. I used to run Akimbo. I don't do that anymore. And so what it means to grow is to acknowledge that there are sunk costs in your life and to realize that there are a choice on your part, whether you carry them around or not anymore. And if you can't serve your audience best by sticking with what you're doing, then it's okay to shift and do something else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love this. And uh, that brings us to uh, the next section of the podcast, which we um, look at it as a lightning round. We call it the rapid fire section. I'm going to shoot you five pointed questions where the idea is to uh, try and put you on the spot or make you take a stand or be opinionated. So are you ready for that? I will do my best. <laughs> All right. So here's my question number one. Do you believe in the idea of follow your passion or would you call BS on it and why? Um, I'm not calling BS on anything, but I would say that it is much more resilient to be passionate about what you do than to try to guess what you would be passionate about and do that. That if you are making the choice to be passionate about what you do, then you're almost always going to be in the right place, at least until you decide to be someplace else. That's brilliant. Because I often felt that, you know, people who advise me to follow my passion are, are a different set of people. For me, my, my passion has always kept evolving. You know, what I liked 10 years back, I don't like now. And my taste keeps evolving. So I, I think uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Right. So here's uh, question number two. Let's say a brand is seen as a specialist by its customers and now decides to broaden their offering. And if you were their marketing consultant, would you be for it or against it? What's a brand? A brand is not a logo. A brand is a promise. It is an expectation. It is a shortcut. If there, if this brand is going to ask me if I'm interested in the new thing, what do I expect the new thing to be like? So Patagonia made very difficult to make parts for people who did very aggressive mountain climbing. And when they came out with their first jacket, their mountain climbers knew what to expect from a Patagonia jacket. And then Patagonia figured out that they could make luggage because as long as the luggage is for a similar group of people and works in a similar high-performance way, the brand is intact. On the other hand, Yeti makes coolers. The Yeti cooler led to the Yeti Tumbler. And the Yeti Tumbler, they pulled off because they actually made a tumbler that was much better than regular tumblers the way the Yeti Cooler was much better than regular coolers. But now, Yeti wants to make luggage. And I, as somebody who has encountered Yeti, never paid my own money for any, but has encountered it, am skeptical that they can keep the promise, that they can make luggage that is that much better than regular luggage, the way Yeti coolers are that much better than regular coolers. And I think that's where brands get in trouble. Your brand should stand for something, an emotion. And if you can bring that emotion for the same customer to a different place, then you can do well with it. <laughs> 
Right. So if, if I had to put Apple as an example here, you know, a, a company that was originally known for computers and suddenly they move on to uh, come up with iPods and then they go on to come up with phones and then now headphones. So how do you look at that? So what does Apple stand for? Well, it has changed in the profit maximizing Tim Cook era, but it is still sort of similar. What Apple has largely stood for is good taste in digital experiences. That people who see themselves as having good taste, people who want to be seen by others as having the status that comes from having good taste, are drawn to the luxury goods that Apple makes. Apple's goods stopped a long time ago being more productive or more efficient for the dollar, but they do, because of the attention to detail, often bring with them an expectation that you have good taste and high status. And the challenge that Apple has had as Tim has tried to maximize profit is they have forgotten to take care of so many of the rough edges. So that Keynote is not a better piece of software than it was five years ago. And Keynote does not make the user of it seem much better than a PowerPoint user the way it did five years ago. And with something like headphones, the people who are competing with them on performance and good taste Well, it's not like competing against Microsoft. It's harder than that. And so I would argue that um, Apple has a lot of work ahead of it if it wants to get bigger again, because the promise they're making is so significant and the amount of competition they have in that direction is so significant that they're going to have to do some bold things, not just some profit-making things to keep that promise going forward. Right, right. Love that. So here's question number three. You have something called the 30-foot rule as a test of being distinct. So can you explain that to our listeners as to how that works? Well, I did a blog post last week about this. And basically what I said is in the supermarket business, if you come out with a new line of snack food, if I can't tell from two aisles away that that's the one you made, then it's not distinctive. It's just me too. But that wasn't what the post was about. What it was about is What's the signature of your work? Whether it's a website you design or the way you speak in a microphone or show up in a Zoom call or participate in a meeting, can we tell that it's you? Is it consistent and distinctive in service of the people that you are there to work with? If it's not, well, then you've chosen to be indistinguishable. Amazing. So uh, I, I move on to my next question because I, I think you you nailed it. I, I think you couldn't have explained that better. So here's my question number four. I know that you've been on both sides of the fence when it comes to using Clubhouse. and uh, But with, with the latest news of LinkedIn and Spotify coming in to compete, whom do you think has an advantage? Or do you see that there are going to be three different subcategories within the audio social media? Ah. <sighs> Okay, so it is indisputable that Clubhouse launched technology to the cool kids better and with more heat than almost any organization I can think of. Right. They got more of a certain kind of digital hipster in the shortest period of time of anything I can remember. However, there are some fundamental flaws of efficient interaction in the whole idea of audio social media. Some of them are that it doesn't scale, that uh, it doesn't have any asynchronicity to it. It demands 
that you find something worth listening to or participating in every time you log on, which is hard to guarantee. So let's realize that almost everything else on the internet is asynchronous, that you can watch the low darts performance of a song that they recorded two weeks ago on YouTube, that you can read a blog post I wrote eight years ago. It's best of, whereas something that is live and only live, not that way. Number two, because of audio, you can't search it. And that means that if it's live and you can't search it, it's even harder to surface and find. And three, it's not a natural monopoly. That doesn't mean that there should only be one channel for this. It makes perfect sense that there will be many, many channels. And in fact, it's likely to become a commodified service so that a a community of any kind, whether it's on Slack or Facebook or Discourse, should install a plugin that gives them Clubhouse functionality. It is not clear to me why there should only be one. And then the last part, if I were an investor, is some things naturally monetize themselves, like search. You want there to be search ads when you do a search because search ads are one method of signaling to you that someone thinks it's worth you clicking. You don't want there to be ads on Clubhouse. The idea of linear audio makes it almost impossible to do effective ads, particularly direct marketing ads, because either they're going to interrupt the flow of what I'm doing, in which case I hate them, or they're so easy to skip, in which case they don't matter. And so when we think about media, and I've been in media now for 40 years, there's not a lot about this medium that strikes me as a business or something that will change the culture in significant ways. It strikes me more as some growth hackers flexing their muscles combined with the cool kids making it the thing of the moment. But I've been wrong before, so I don't know. No, the reason I'm 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 thinking about this differently is because you know when I tried Clubhouse, I I was there for about a month and then over a period of time I lost interest. And one of my uh, key pointers was that it did not have enough connectivity to LinkedIn, and LinkedIn is my preferred social medium. So when LinkedIn is creating this, I thought there would be uh, an influx of migration from Clubhouse happening to uh, LinkedIn. So do you think that is also possible? It doesn't matter. No one uses Clubhouse to a rounding error. Clubhouse is less than 1% of the population of the US. Got it, got it. Right, so here's my uh, final question. One of my favorite quotes that comes from you is that you say your story doesn't have to be a book. It simply is your chance to make a difference. So in a company, who, according to you, should be owning the storytelling? Well, we can agree, I think, that accounting is anything that touches the accounts. Right. So marketing is anything that touches the market. And the thing that touches the market the most is the story your company lives and breathes. Who you hire, what you dump in the river, what your pricing is, how you answer the phone, all of it. That's marketing. And that has to go all the way up to the top. It begins with the people who deal with the customer and it ends with the people who sign the paycheck. And if those people aren't in charge of marketing, then who is? And if they are in charge of marketing, then they better be clear about what they stand for and don't stand for. Because if your motto is you can pick anyone and we're anyone, then you're doomed. Right. Unfortunately, what happens in the content marketing world, at least, uh, you know, as much I've seen is that majority of the people who are writing content tend to 
come up with their content just they translate the feature into a problem statement and the problem statement again into the solution and they're not necessarily understanding who their customer is what their problem is or at least what the product stands for the fundamental belief system so uh, you know the marketing person is blaming the salesperson so it it goes pointing hands around the organization and there is no one fundamental agreement across the organization as to what is our story what do we stand for right and this is what i wrote about in this is marketing People only care about two things. Once their needs are met, they care about affiliation and status. Affiliation is people like us do things like this. Who is like me? Am I part of this group? And status is, will this make me better than my peers? Will this keep me from falling behind? Those are the only two things. That's it. And so if you think about a car commercial that brags about how many horsepower a car has, You're not going to be in a race with anyone. You don't need to know that. What they're actually saying is, this will make you cooler than your next door neighbor. Or what is Facebook's entire strategy? Their entire strategy is, people are talking about you behind your back. Do you want to hear what they're (laughs) saying? That's it. Same as LinkedIn, right? LinkedIn is, there's a big club going on and you're not in it. You better catch up. So we need to keep coming back to those two things. As copywriters, as strategy makers, as storytellers, we got to ask each other before we spend a nickel on advertising or marketing or sales, we got to ask each other, who's it for? What's it for? What are we promising when it comes to affiliation? What are we promising when it comes to status? And if you can't figure that out, you should probably go home and not come back until you can. Right, right. So uh, with that, we come to uh, the end of the podcast or the final section. Uh, but before I uh, you know, thank you and uh, let you go, I would request you to uh, share a parting message with our audience. Uh, you know, these, these are people who are marketers and salespeople in the SaaS community with at least about eight plus years of experience. So if you can share something uh, for them to carry on into their work, that would be fantastic. Oh, well, I never run out of words. So I would guess what I'd encourage people to do who are smart enough to listen to your podcast, who care enough about their career to get better at what they do, is to keep doing the reading. Keep paying attention to what others are saying about how we do our jobs better. I have zero respect for the Silicon Valley bro who says, I don't need to know what came before, who doesn't (laughs) have any awareness of the failures and successes that happened previously. That's foolish because people have failed before you got there and learning how and learning what they know. You know, if I say to someone in your space, what did you think of uh, Morris crossing the chasm? And they look at me like I have a third head. Well, how is it that you haven't read that book? Can you imagine going for surgery with someone who didn't go to medical school? Do the reading. Do the reading. It's worth it. That's an amazing message. I absolutely love that. And for the listeners of the podcast, if they want to get in touch with you, uh, what are some of the best reasons to and uh, how can they connect with you? Well, unfortunately, you can't get in touch with me, but you can read 8,000 of my blog posts at sets.blog, S-E-T-H-S dot blog. And if you want to see what the folks at Akimbo are up to, they're at akimbo.com. That's A-K-I-M-B-O. And my podcast is at akimbo.link. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Seth. You know, it has been like 40 minutes of amazing nuggets. I think when I go back and sit down to edit, I'm going to have absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing all the nuggets that comes from your 40 plus years of experience. Well, it's a pleasure. Keep leading. 
and keep making a ruckus. Thank you so much. And uh, to the listeners of the podcast, that's that from us for this episode. And until we connect with you the next time with another guest and another wonderful topic, this is bye from me, Yag. Take care. Thanks for listening to the ABM Conversations Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and share your comments with us. We're constantly looking for your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions to make the show more relevant to you. 